Hello and welcome to um, another episode of the Adjutant's uh, Lounge. Joined as I am every day, not every day, because that just makes it sound like you're here all the time and that's wrong. There you go, the professionalism again shining through. This is why our numbers are creeping up, because people know what they're getting. <laughs> the Adjutant's Lounge podcast, pure professionalism. Uh, it makes BBC look positively shambolic. <laughs> This is why the RAF could never hit their target. They just didn't know where day it was. <laughs> what can I say? Afternoon, OCG, G sort of brackets, J4. I'm joined by Dr. Philip Blood, the, the man who keeps coming back for more. Um, I... I... <laughs> I'm not, when it's got to that point where we're having a chat. We always have a chat beforehand. Do you want to carry on doing this? Yeah, because it's really good fun, isn't it? Yeah, we can talk about trains and stuff. I'm glad I live in Arkham. Because <laughs> when I'm with you every day. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'd, I'd have certain publishers saying, what are you playing at, you idiot? You've got books due. <laughs> my, my response is just, God, give me a chance. I'm but mortal. No. <laughs> Um, we, yes, we, are you right, Phil? Yeah, I come on this program to forget to write. Most <laughs> people just come on the program to forget. It's it's it's, it's, almost, it's almost like electronic cheap cheap own brand gin. This is my gin hour. Well, the, the, I, I, yeah, it, it, it's sort of like we were saying, isn't it? It's the Friday wind down, and this goes out after the Fridays, goes comes out on the Monday. But this off sort of weekend wind down because we've, you know, just just ah oh, weeks, but not as bad as the week of the MOD, has it? You know, with with the Ajax saga. <laughs> ah, Warhammer tank, Warhammer tank, yeah. What? A, yeah, we were talking about. I should, I, they should paint it pink with gold traps. <laughs> Like one of those, you know, Sigmar, you know, these strange names that they get from Warhammer. You know, <laughs> yeah, I, I, the manky, the, you know, I, I the, the manky rangers from Marillion. The manky rangers from Marillion. It sounds like a really bad football team. Yeah, it's like the tank. <laughs> so, so we've got the British Army have now decided to morph into something from 40k. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the great thing about the Warhammer is it's shake, rattle, <laughs> shake, rattle and roll. <laughs> <laughs> How not to build a tank. <laughs> well, no, no, they built the tank. They just didn't listen to the people who were going to use it, you know. No, or even consider the people inside. What does health and safety say about, you know, working in a Warhammer tank? Look, at the end of the day, they're going to war. They're going to get killed one way. They're going to kill you. They're going to get deafened. All part of the, it's all part of the responsibility. So the line, a, you take it. I think it's a Trojan horse. The plan is you drive into the enemy lines, then you run away. And when the enemy try and take the tanks, they shake themselves to death. <laughs> cool, it, 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 designed by Baldrick and Son. <laughs> Yeah. It's going to get to this. Going to get the point. I'm going to be. I'm going to become. You know. You know the the spads. You know, all these spads are these lists of people not to engage with. I'm going to be on one of them if I'm not already. <laughs> well, when, when did you fly spads in the First World War? 
Not me personally. I wasn't allowed. I wasn't allowed anywhere yeah, near anything. Was you were fighting in the First World War against the Red Baron, weren't you? <laughs> no, that was that was the um, the Peanuts dog Snoopy. Ah. <laughs> oh no, he was the Red Baron, wasn't he? <laughs> I get confused. But I'm sure somebody had spads who were flying against the Red Baron. He's a French. French had the spads, French. I believe. Ah, sneaky. <laughs> <laughs> now, when we're talking about spads at this point, we're not talking about the special, the, the, the unemployed advisors who government who often get told to white. Well, they used to get told to white and then exit by every man. Is, oh, oh, that's a nice, interesting uh, opinion you've got. Wind your neck in, son, get some time and disappear. Now, somehow, they're, they're helping shape government. Don't know how that works, but spads in this case are the aircraft. Do you not know that? No. Yeah. So I'm just I'm very me, naive when it comes to Twitter. I think everybody's yeah. nice. Well, no, we, we, <laughs> you're, you're a little bit like that puppy that goes to the dog daycare centre for the first time and wanders up to the Chihuahua, thinking he's small and he's a puppy too, realizing the Chihuahua's seven years old and it's going to rip your throat out. <laughs> I always think when they write in capitals, it's, make, it's to help my old eyesight. <laughs> Is it not? <laughs> There's something wrong with your phone, mate. Cap lock's on. <laughs> my my, my, my favourite com comeback at the moment is, yeah, you used to get a better class of troll and bot on here. But now it's got that, but I don't even bother. Just I want to see, let's see, mute or block. Let's look at the timeline. Oh, they've got some interesting things on mute and block. You're a cock. There you go. <laughs> But no messing. Actually, actually, I'm very lucky because there's a lot of good people on Twitter and they all support me. And I have to say, I'm really encouraged by them because, like yesterday, Nick Short, I don't know if you, if you follow or support Nick, but Nick's got a lot of uh, contacts in Russia and what have you. And he, he, uh, he tagged me to some Russian railway event. Oh, well. Was taking place on the 26th, 28th of August. And there's films of trains and photographs, and that, was, that, that really kept me happy for the next hour, playing it back and looking at them, because it's all those Russian locomotives. And you, don't, you don't get that much stuff going on over here about what's going on in Russian steam train preservation and what have you. And that was really good. And then there's the usual things where there's lunatics out there who who uh, think that my love of steam trains is a wind up to their miserable lives. But why would you think this? Yes, I, I hate you. So I'm going to post this this wonderful picture of an A4 at full pelt. Take that, you rotter. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, Machetti <laughs> pretends to hate steam trains. So I've just literally loaded loaded up with so many trains. He can't cope. So he actually surrendered to me the other day, so I, I let him off. But, you know, I think we're very lucky that, that in, within the circles there is this group of both dedicated as well as scholarly types, and they all engage in some really interesting discussions. I mean, we've had fun about the Warhammer, you know, the tank. Um, we've had fun about the trains. And I, can I just say, I think there's a relationship between the Warhammer tank and the disaster of railways in Britain. And I think it, it's a similar mindset that came out of a, a guy called Beeching, 
Oh, and it, uh, right, I'm now going to have to disinfect the, the whole computer system now. <laughs> Beaching the scoundrel. And then this morning I see that we've got no beer coming into Britain because you've got no hops being collected. And the hops that are not collected are not being taken by drivers that don't exist to go to the breweries, which are not going to brew any beer because there isn't any hops. And, and I read all that and listened to all that and I thought to myself, well, but for the steam trains, you know, everybody could have their beer. Well, the, th the thing is, if, if you think about this, it, you know, <clears throat> it, it's Switzerland, isn't it? And the Swiss, I like the Swiss for several things. One, Caran d'Ache pencils, I love them. Okay. Uh, it's all cliche stuff, by the way, I like them for. Uh, two, Toblerone, I love I Toblerone. think now. We've gone from pencils to Toblerone, having been talking to Warhammer tanks and steam trains. Oh, so. it all comes together. It all comes together in a minute. You'll, you'll, okay. you'll, you'll, in a minute, I will blast you sideways with my genius of thought. But one thing they do do, they have these. You know, they've got this lovely railway network, don't they? I noticed. Now, this is going to sound really odd, and it's not meant to. And it's, it's, it's almost like a disclosure. On YouTube, you can get the cabin view rides, can't you, of locomotives. And it will take you through a route. You know, the driver, driver's eye view of a route. Now, there's, there's several of the, of, of the Swiss railways in winter. And it's lovely. Absolutely brilliant. But one thing I noticed, every so often in a siding, there'd be a lorry back. You know, the, the, the lorry backs, they pop on and off. Of a spar wagon. I thought, that's really odd. So I looked into this. What they do is... Rather than cram the road full of lorries, they load up the lorry, load up the lorry back, disappears. Like we used to have, a, you remember the, the Scammel Carabs we used to use? Yeah. Yeah, like that. Goes off to a railhead, puts it on the train. This needs to go to X, Y, and Z. Can you drop these off in order? Dispatcher at the railhead. Yeah, of course we can do that. Pop it on. Off it go, off, off the train goes. When it gets to the the first station, similar sort of thing, little light tractor units waiting for it, takes the thing off the back, everything's disconnected, and it takes the next one. The furthest anything has to go by rail, <clears throat> and this was this was a claim I found somewhere on the web, is 15 kilometres. From from rail, sorry, to shop. 15 kilometres is the furthest point by road. Can I say something? You're going to destroy this, aren't you? Go on. Uh, no, 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 no. I'm going to give away my age now, but I actually remember the post train came in and the post trucks were on the side trucks. So you had the mail wagon and then you also had the post trucks. And the post trucks were hitched to waiting, whatever you call them, the front bit with the engine. They would drive up to the back of these trucks from platform to, to that wagon. All, all the men did was just lift up a, a hook the, the the driver then backed in the vehicle underneath the truck dropped the dropped the anchor and then drove the, the the rear of the truck away and i thought all of that had gone and then i saw them in switzerland and i thought well how come the swiss are using it on their you know on their national toy railway trains and yeah. we're not <coughs> And to my horror, I actually heard that the container freight yard at Euston 
well, not Euston, it's Wilsdon, where the engine sheds used to be, is now much reduced and barely doing any business at all. It's because there's this, uh, and it, it, it seems to be a post-war thing, doesn't it, in Britain, where we don't think, we, we sever our links with the past almost so thoroughly that when we suddenly realise there was the, those things actually existed for a reason, it's too late to do anything about it, and we're stuck with the situation. And um, I don't get it. Between you, me, and the gay post, I get none of it. Why, why do it? Why not make everyone's lives easier? Yes, I know why people do it. You, someone's someone's got to make money, but let's be a bit imaginative about this because the world's changing. We need we need to cut down those diesel mileages. We need to cut down the the, the excessive use of road transport, and we need to look at how we used to do things. And the railways are a brilliant way of doing it. I did actually jokingly say once to a preservation guy, I said one day the preserved railway is going to be the feeder lines to the main lines. And he said, why do you work that out? And I said, because oil prices and trucks and diesels and all the rest of it are not long term sustainable. Huh? And he kind of looked at me and he said, nah, you, the preserved trains are always going to be preserved trains. I'm not so sure. And um, with all of those little feeder lines feeding in, you know, you look at the Seven Valley Railway, it, it's feeding from Bridge North to Kidderminster. If the Seven, if the Seven River has flooded uh, Budley, why can't the trains be used to bring in supplies if people are in need of stuff? Why not? Right? It strikes me as an infinitely sensible thing to do. And similarly, if you've got a, a railway line like the, the the Great Central or the ones that goes over the Ribblehead, um, the one that needs to take some of the weight off the main line and put them on a proper, you know, preserved run railway line where people want to get from Manchester to Edinburgh, but not, not at a crazy rate and not paying the kind of prices they pay, then why not run it on a preserved line? I, I think we've got into some kind of madness. Well, it's not my home anymore, but it just seems, it just strikes me that what's happened with the disaster over the trucks and the no beer in the shops and being told by friends, you know, bank holiday weekend, there was no beer in the pubs. I mean, just strikes me that the whole thing has now reached such a bizarre level that you're going to have to rethink again. Rethink how everything works. I mean, you know, if you looked at the... I still don't get how we've gone from a situation where you had a work, perfectly working, fully functional, superbly advanced transportation system to a system that can't supply a little bit of food. I mean, it's not like we're talking about a country the size of Germany or America. We're talking about little old Britain. And that's the thing, isn't it? It's, it's because it's sort of, it, it is it is this mindset. It's little old Britain, you know. We 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 dot a by, we make do, and we mend. We we know we bulldog spirit and all that ridiculous nonsense. And it doesn't actually, put, like I say, just put beer in the barrel. And you know the crazy thing about all of this at an emergency moment, I'm going to use a historical um, comparison here. There were no railways into a certain Polish forest. The Germans captured the forest and saw the wood and said, there's enough wood there. Having raped all our forests, there's enough wood here to reconstruct a new line 
which eventually became the Hindenburg Line in the First World War. Okay. Right? So how much would you think they would cut to do that? Well, total forest mass, you wouldn't want more than 20%, surely. So you, so they cut somewhere in the, re, in the, in the way of 35 uh, million cubic centimetres of wood. What? In four years, right? So that, that's the first thing. But how did they transport it when they had no main trains going into the forest? What's happened there? Go on. Right. They cut the trunks of the trees, laid them like railways. Yep. Like lines. <clears throat> put wood bearing freight on those lines and pulled them by horses. So you actually had wooden train pulled, man, uh, pulled by horses going deep into the forest so the men could carry on cutting, loading up the wood onto the onto these small cheap trolleys. So you'd only have maybe four or five logs per cart. And then a horse would take them to the to the locals, the next station or the waypoint. Steam train would bring up the freight and they would load it up over time probably take a day of full loadings because you've got all of this wood coming down. Of course, you're not taking the you're not taking the, the, the truck straight back. So you take them around in a big circle, collecting wood from other points and other points and bringing them all around till eventually you fill the train and the train's gone. And I, say, I thought to myself, they've actually thought about laying wooden tracks to run trains deep into a forest to carry on the work process and it's all worked effectively and efficiently. You haven't used diesel engines, steam engines or any other heavy machinery. All they've done is use wood and they've, <coughs> and they've been able to carry large amounts of stuff constantly like a conveyor. And I thought that's, that's ingenious. I, and this again shows ingenuity, doesn't it, <coughs> of Actually, there's a lot to take from that, isn't there, really? There are so many ways in which you can look at the act. Um. <clears throat> See, like in, in the colonies, the German army took, um, what do you call it, when you prefabricated lumps of tracks. So they would take, they're about six foot long chunks of narrow gauge track which were prefabricated and made in a single mould. So you had the track and the sleepers were all one big iron, metal, steel, whatever unit. They were then loaded into in, in packages and contained off or trucked off to the colonies. They arrive at the colony point and as the train's going down the line, guy, load of guys pick up one lump of track, stick it on the front of the train, and then another one, another one, another one. Then the train goes on and on and on and on. And they built a railway line, an instant railway line. <clears throat> and, and that's the thing, isn't it? It, it? it boils down to thinking about the problem, overcoming the problem in the simplest way possible, applying the brains that you have at the time to, to come up with a solution that is workable, and then just doing it, rather than getting, getting the knickers in a twist over it, they just did. Yeah. And they use use something that was already proven to be, you know, to, prove to be effective, and that's the issue, isn't it, with railway? You know, the railway travel. 
uh, we, we, we were discussing, dare I say, he who must not be mentioned you know, during the cup period. They, they visited, you were saying that they visited the, the, a lot of these, the, 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 the little lines out of the commuting hours. Well, of course it's going to be quiet. You know, it, it was almost sort of, so it was, it was a huge act of self-harm on a, on a network, just so a few lads could make some money on their new fodden trucks. Well, the thing is, you got these, <clears throat> you had so many competing self-interests, which were against the public interest. And, and what you see with what happened with the railways, initially you think about it, you think, well, okay, we're going from an old system to a new system. But how come every country in Europe didn't just get rid of everything and start afresh? The only country that's ever done that is Britain. And every time, every time since 1945, Britain's gone down the road of trying to build something. It's either been, quote, shit or bust. It, the, the things have either worked or after a huge amount of expenditure and effort, they've been abandoned. And you only have to look at what happened in the 60s to just realise how stupid we were, because not only were there was a massive reconstruction of cities like bulldozing down what everybody claimed were slum houses, which they weren't, and built housing, which was slum housing, within a year or two years, within 10 years were having to be pulled down because they were beyond livable. And, and the famous Adam Curtis uh, produced his first programme in 1984, talking about the housing scandal. Uh, I, my whole family was caught up in this housing scandal in Manchester. But the point, the point of the matter was there was interest there. There was money. You look at TSR2, all the investment that went into TSR2 was massive. And once that failed, the impact on the aviation community in Britain was, was utterly devastating. The only way they were able to get back anything was to transfer some of those people who've worked on TSR2 onto the Concorde programme. So they get Concorde and, and having put all the money into Concorde, they're not able to sell it properly. So you create something that was perfect and I actually flew in Concorde twice to to from New York to, to London and, and I knew what the experience was like. And okay, yeah, those engines now, we would call them polluters and all the rest of it. But what about the engineering that went into those? Why did we never get to a point where we develop it and create something new? And the same situation then goes with the steam engines. We have a country that says, right, we're going to get rid of steam engines. So you've actually got steam engines. This is the absurdity of Britain. I still can't get my head around it. They're still building steam engines up to 1960, and within four years, they're going straight on the scrap heap. So you've built a steam engine, which is worth, I don't know, £300,000, and you've scrapped it within four years, which is maybe, given the quality of the builds of those locomotives, could have lasted another 80 years. Well, we uh, know, we know, because Evening Star... Mm has continued in service right the way through to present day. And we know steam engines, which have had 200 years service behind them almost, are still steaming. So there's, 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 a, there's a complete and utter 
nonsense having taken place there that you've not only discarded all of this assets, all of this value, all of this money, all of this cost, all of these people's lives, the whole communities that went with it, but you've just casted them away to a system that you may work. But then what happens? Having started to eat the railway system, Britain then proceeded to carry on eating this to the railway system until you go up to that idiot John Major who said, oh, we've got to go back to the old days, which is, you know, we need LNER and LMS and all of that stuff, which was the biggest load of dangly bits. For, for <laughs> I mean, how ridiculous was that? And now look, you've got a railway system. Who on earth charges, what is it? £4,000 a year for a season ticket from Manchester to London? Am I... Am, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I can't think that. It's almost laughable, isn't it, that we don't... In, this, in, in the United Kingdom, we don't have... We have very, very few national assets left. We've got rid of everything. And it, it has always made me chuckle that people genuinely believe that by privatising things, things are going to get cheaper. No, it doesn't work like that, you know, because, and, and actually they're not fully privatised because these companies are still taking money from the public purse. They're still being subsidised. So, so it's actually is a privatisation. It's not fully worked. And, and this is the often the problem with projects such as these that companies buy into them, don't they, like Virgin, and they run it so badly and they take all the money, but they don't do any of the investment, which is really vital for any for any transportation network you have to invest in. I mean, the state of the roads in this country are appalling. They run it into the ground, and then all of a sudden they panic, oh, we can't do it anymore. Can we, can we have some money from the government? Or the government go, lads, where are you playing at? No, let's, let's have it back. Let's, let's run it properly. LNER, it's become like a ping pong line. Virgin, you know, Virgin Rail, somebody else this week, somebody else that week, back to the government. And all the while, they're still taking money from the from the public purse to run this. That's not true privatisation. That's just giving money to somebody to to run a service that belongs to people anyway and should be. You know, it's a national asset. But it's not just that; it's a public utility. Yeah, exactly. And a, and a public utility should be working to the service of the greater good. And the greater good was getting to getting people to work cheaply and efficiently. So that the city and the and and the various city communities, where all work was concentrated, could function efficiently. But all of that seems to have just been thrown out the window. I mean, the idea, the idea that somehow you've got to spend a quarter of your earnings just getting to and from work is utter madness. It's also boring. Well, it's not just that. Yeah, well, okay, because you're not on the steam train. But yeah, the exactly. Fact, <laughs> and the fact, but the fact of the matter is, you're getting up at what seven o'clock in the morning to get to work for nine o'clock. You've spent all that effort to get there. You're lucky if you can sit down. You spent eight thousand, four thousand pounds on a season ticket. You've spent another thousand pounds parking your car to get to the station so that you can get to the train. The train is invariably late, packed, crowded um delayed whatever and then you've got to go through that at the end of the day and at the end of the day what have you achieved you've probably achieved less than you could have done if there had been investment in all of that system so that you'd you, you'd driven to work comfortably i mean how long does it take a person to settle down after they've arrived to work 
I, I, I've sat in a city office in London after a long journey. And, you know, you've probably got an hour of people just talking about their journey in in the morning. If it's not an hour of that time, it will certainly come up in further conversations and time wasting through the day. Well, today was a crap day. It took me an hour to get here more than it should have done. And that go that ram has ramifications in the office with people being grumpy and fed up and all the rest of it. And and somehow, I mean, I suppose I was a decent boss and turned around and say, well, you know, have a cup of tea and then we'll put you back to slavery later. <laughs> <laughs> but but, but the 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 I just don't get it. It just that, that I used to watch people pile out of the trains at Waterloo East and think to myself, good God, this this can't continue. Because if the people are so packed into that train, they're frightened of missing the one before, uh, the one mm. after. Because if the one after is going to be bad, then the one after that's going to be bad. And at which point does this whole system start to creak and you can see it creaking i mean in the 90s they've gone through all this new investment and building rebuilding the railways and making everything super super snazzy with stagecoach and all the rest of it and none of it was working it just wasn't working and and it, it it's very interesting how in all of that efficiency all of those efforts towards efficiency and making things better the trains didn't get there any faster. And and that's the thing, isn't it? We 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 don't put the right people in the right jobs in this country, and well, in most countries politically, you know, you, they they very rarely select the, you know the right person for the job, and that echoes down as well within industry. I recall um, a decade ago, I was working for a certain water company. Uh, and their chief executive had failed as the chief executive of a railway, and yet of, of, of a railway organisation. And yet somehow his complete failure allowed him almost to step up. You know, there's this, this reward of failure that we see so often within big business and um, politics. And it was astounding. And I thought, oh, the guy, the guy cost his, his previous employer literally hundreds of millions. What's he doing here? I, mean, I wouldn't even trust him to answer the phone. Um, and, and like you say, we, we and I, I can't quite get my head around it or explain it sufficiently enough to say that we, we, we have these great institutions which we're always very proud of. You know, the British seem to be very proud, but they don't invest in them. They don't want them. They don't want to have to be responsible for them. But they're happy to take the kudos when it works. But when it fails, good God. Well, I remember when I was at business school and I, I went just for the fun of it. I, I went to a whole load of lectures on distribution and supply because it it wasn't specifically the field that I was in. But being a train freak, I wondered what on earth these guys are going to talk about. And there, there was one professor there and I I was amazed. I suddenly thought, I want to I want to study this because this guy He's changing, he's changing all of these, he's changing everybody's minds because he's saying straight away, everything that Britain has done in the way of transportation has been a disaster since the 60s. That was his virtually opening remark. And what was very interesting later on, he would bring in trade unionists 
people who worked in the trade unions moving all sorts of stuff, supplies in the docks, in the coal mines, all of these places, you would bring them in and talk to the students who were all going to be management high flyers. And they would explain stuff. And I would I was just sat in total fascination with the ineptitude of what British management could do. I was so astonished at the stupidity of some British managers. I was I was amazed. I mean, the, I, I still remember when they the, there was a conversation in some business schools and we had it was where you you join up things. So there was the computer systems analysis work joined with operational research, joined with supply, joined with strategic planning. And they were looking at what happened when BEA and BOAC combined. Because British overseas, whatever it was, Airways, Airways Corporation, yeah. And British European Airways were mashed together to become British Airways. Well, BEA had a different ticketing reference to BOAC, right? So we had a case study, and it was beyond my genius. I couldn't work it out. And this guy turned around to all of us and said, oh, it's the difference between three digits and four digits, isn't it? And there's this light switch moment. And I'm looking, I thought, wow. And the fact that BEA and BOAC had different digits, three, three digits to four digits, had led to an expenditure of like some 150 million pounds in computer development, and they still couldn't create a computer system that could pick up the two flight systems. So the two flight booking systems couldn't work all because of one digit. And they couldn't smash them together and make it work effectively. So in the end, they had to rip it all out and have a, a complete new unique system. And I thought, wow. Because if that happens in aviation and aircraft, and then you've got the, what happens in British railways, and then you get what happens on the road system, and then you get what happens in shipping. How, how long does it take before it happens in the military? And there we are. My story is better than yours because I lead us almost completely to the war hammer. <laughs> <laughs> There, there is sometimes we have we have these conversations, don't we? And they happen for a reason. And this is very much one of those those conversations, isn't it? So, am I going to have a serious moment, or am I going to have a? Or are we going to stay joking? What do you want to do? I promised Twitter World that we were talking about something about the German armies and the railways. And we, I, I, I think, actually leads nicely into that. Yeah. Yeah, well, let, let, let's slide into that. Let's extend the program. We had we had agreed on forty five minutes, so we're gonna we're gonna slide this to an hour. Are you gonna prune anything? No, because that means editing. No, and I am last week, and you had me looking for my book. <laughs> that is like, behaviour, Biggles. Ah, oh, that's an awful thing. Noted. That was noted. <laughs> you had me looking for my book. <laughs> anyway, well, anywho. Um, Here's some here's some thinkings. Just before we get down to the the some hardcore military analysis, here's some here's some thinkings. So in 1942, 
If you got the train between Warsaw and Lodz in Poland, the official time was four hours. Today, that train would take an hour. Okay, and it's very cheap. It's about five quid. So, if you have, if you looked at the train going from uh, Warsaw to Chemno, which we know was where the, one of the camps was, today that would take three hours. In 1942, that could take four days. One of the trains leaving from Lodge to get to Warsaw took six days instead of four hours or today's number, an hour. If you look at a train that I actually followed from Biowice in the Polish forest um, up near Bialystok, the train kicked off in November 1942 and it took nearly seven days to do 40 miles. Wow. And you start asking yourself, OK, what was the cargo? The cargo was Jews. Now, if you look at the troop train doing exactly the same limits, a troop train, which is heavily loaded, going in the same direction, slightly a little bit longer on the Kelmo route, 14 hours. And it took 14 hours because with all the weight, they're running at a certain constant speed because you've got armament and kit and what have you. But you don't have that with passengers. Because passengers are like, you know, loose. If you look at a train leaving, if you looked at a train that left in 1942 from Dusseldorf in August 1942, on its way to Auschwitz, it stopped 15 times and took nearly eight days. And that carried 140 Jews from Aachen. And that went into the Auschwitz Eastbound network. Now, I know that the general direction east, which is the railways in the east, which came under which uh, Poland occupied Poland and Belarus and Ukraine became part of that railway network. All of that came into the German railway system and really the engineering work was not much different. So the trains were running standard plans and normal routines and what have you. What you're seeing in those train movements was factored into the misery of the Jews. Well, I said that the right way. The misery of the Jews was factored into the routing. That's what I meant to say. Yeah. And that is not in the story. And the reason why it's not in the story is because nobody reads what the trains are doing and comparing the, the traffic that was carrying the Holocaust with the traffic that was carrying the military, with the traffic that was carrying the ordinary passengers. Now, it might surprise you to know that in all of this military nonsense going on, you could still get an ordinary ticket from Warsaw and go to Lodz and it would take you four hours. 
So if you're a Polish person or a German and you have to travel on that train, you go to the ticket office, you buy a ticket and away you go on the train. The question is, what have they done on the line to the train that's full of Jews? And this is when you get these these statements about um, from survivors that the trains are actually channeled into um, like halts and junctions and held in a siding. But the engines aren't taken away. So you've got a crazy situation where the locomotives are actually being, being kept working while the trains in the sidings waiting to go for days upon days upon days. So I started to look at this and the use of trains in the east. And something could became very interesting. If you if you look at the Wikipedia page and you look at various books and you look at Schindler's list, you'll see and you watch Schindler's list. There's a there's a point when they use a class 52 German brand new steam engine comes into Auschwitz, big steam carrying loads of people. Well, that's not the case because very few of the modern trains were put into the eastern system. So what you've got is a few of the advanced trains taking premier loads of Panzer Division material and equipment and support to the battlefronts and operating like Hitler's fire brigade. So those steam engines, those premier heavy loading, fast action steam engines are carrying those loads. But then if you come down the list of really geriatric steam engines from around Europe, you suddenly come to the trains which are being assigned to the Jews. They are, well, the last of the old. So somewhere, and I've yet to find it, somewhere in the mindset of the railway men, which we never really thought about before, are a whole load of people assigning substandard transport to the movement of Jews, normal transport to everyday events, and supercharged transport to the military trains. And that creates a pyramid in how the railways were working in Germany. So you think, okay, You've got a normal train, and, and, and if you went to WG Siebold and he talks about a train coming down from Hamburg and arriving in Munich and it's full of distressed people after the bombing and all the rest of it, and everybody's jammed in, that would be a normal train. But a super train is a train that's going carrying troops, mostly panzers, mostly armoured troops and regiments, and they're going in convoys, maybe as many as 20 to 30 trucks carrying the best part of a regiment per train from one part of Europe to the other, crossing all the lines. They're going on super lines, protected, given flat cover, aircraft cover maybe even, um, you know, fighter cover, if it's essential to get that train into a battle area. Well, that changes the complexion of how complex the German military model is because the railways are working to three levels to an army that's operating in a very very convoluted Gemini formation of internal lines where 
each movement goes one way or the other. So they're not working to any Clausewitz model, they're working to a Jominin model. You've got the complexity of the railroads themselves running their, their, their operations. Then you've got the military running different kinds of operations because you've got Hitler's fire brigade given priority. You've got the units on the ground given their priority. And then you've got the reserve units which are being raised in the various departments within Germany being formed to go to their trains for a different routing process. And when you start putting all of that together, the German system is incredibly complex. And then you realize the get the railway guys who were working to the system like Gansenmuller, Dotmuller and Gerke, they never changed. They stayed in their jobs all the way through the war. Because they were making the system work. What do you think? Interesting thesis? It is, isn't it? <coughs> Very sobering. Because it's sobering because I think you you don't really think that the trains that are evacuate, evacuate, deporting Jews to extermination camps are part of a normal system. But they're working to a normal system. And you can only know by the crews themselves that what's going on is premeditated. So if you look at the captured prisoner of war records of lo locomotive drivers that are captured by the Allies when they give their testimony, they're explaining just that. They know what their cargo is. They know their schedule. They know their manifest and they know when they're going to get to where they're going to be. They know it takes seven days to get from Hungary with the Hungarian Jews in 1944. They know it's going to take, the first train is going to take seven days to get to Auschwitz. Because at the same time, you're moving armoured divisions in the same area. <laughs> That's a horrific thought, really, isn't it? You, you, you're running the last of the Holocaust within a major final war operations. And it's not getting priority stock, but it's getting important stock to be able to fill the space. So it's taking up space on the line. So it's having to be engineered into the system because those trains didn't exist before. So before October 1944, those trains didn't exist. They now have to create those trains, put them into the system to get to Auschwitz. Then you have to manage them in and you know what you're going to do with them, which is to slow them down and make sure there's a high death rate before you've even got to where you are. Plus, if the people are emaciated and damaged when they arrive at the extermination camps, they're not going to be a security issue. It's exceptionally cynical, isn't it? And I think that's why in all the magazines I've got of German railways by German railway men, there's only four pages associated with the Holocaust. And, and, and I'm not being cynical, I'm just trying to weigh the evidence. 
No, 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 no. I, I know you're, you're normal, but the, but the system was, wasn't it? It was sort of, you know, yeah, apathetic almost, actually. It, it, well, it was just, it was just, well, we know what it is. What it was. So, you got, so how can anybody... This is, this is, you suddenly bring that all back, you see, because you're looking at railroads, and railroads are part of everyday life, so how can you miss what's going on? Because it's happening in front of you and the trains are there. Well, you could say, okay, well, they're holding the trains in sidings away from human beings, but the people have got to get to the trains in the first place, haven't they? Yeah. Yeah. You've got, what, two million people working in the German railways? How many of them know what's going on? Probably all of them. Soon the numbers, as you start building up the numbers and you start asking, it suddenly tells you a story of just how widespread the knowledge of the Holocaust was in Germany. But the one model that we haven't really spent a lot of time looking at and exploring is when the military historians, like I've been in the past, have focused on the operations and haven't understood that the operations have been back to back with the Holocaust. That's a frightening thought, you know. If you're building trains to go east, you know, when I'm saying building trains, I mean putting all the trucks together, and you're articulating in 1941-42 between trains which are going to go faster towards Stalingrad against trains that are going to go to Treblinka, Kelno, Sobibor, Auschwitz. <laughs> There's real complex planning there because you don't have a computer, do you? you no, it's all awesome. card indexes and it's working out train manifests. I mean, can you imagine working out a train manifest for the, I'm going to use the example, the first SS Panzer Division in Kursk in, 19, in 1943. Well, the, its armoured regiment is going to take up at least, at least 50 trucks. So the decision to make it go there, okay, it's quite a rapid decision, but you've you've got to get the trucks into position to get the train moving, to get the troops to that spot. Plus, you've got to clear the marshalling yard. This is another thing that people don't work out. You've got to clear the marshalling yard for the trains to arrive. You can't put trains in a full marshalling yard. So you've got to get the trains out to get the trains in. And then you've got to do it on a constant rotation basis, because if you're not feeding them in, feeding them out in a rapid basis, you get choke points. So the military, ba the, the military operations are working to a system, and that's why I don't think they can have super trains everywhere. Because if you put these super trains with the heavy loads of coal and supply, they need extra care and attention they need extra maintenance they need extra support okay you can have a panzer division going along with class 52 heavy super built new built steam trains but for all the other trains you want things which are old and rubbishy and so and and they're going to be easy to maintain and and um deal with so if the clank if a rod is thrown you can easily put on a new one with a spanner and it's not too much work. But these are these big complicated engines. You need all kinds of systems to work with them, you know, liftings and what have you. 
Well, if your sister, if your infrastructure in the east isn't that good, then actually you want the cheaper little rubbishy little engines to do the work. And similarly, with the trains that are moving the Jews, you want simpler. So you have a fantastic, you, you think, you assume that all the railway construction and building that's going on in Germany in the Second World War is geared up towards primarily making the the extermination of the Jews at one hand go faster, and you think the building of the trains and the and the new railways and what have you is going to make the army more efficient in operations in the east. And actually, what you actually find is the old stuff from pre 1930s is the standard stuff that's doing the work, that's running the engine, that's running the railway lines, running the services and doing the bulk of the carrying. It's no words really actually on this one. I couldn't believe that they'd take rubbish old steam engines, which were like on their last legs and drive them all to the eastern front. Why would you do that? I'll tell you why, because they were easy to maintain. So if you've got like turn of the century steam engines that are not much use nor ornament in France, you know, on a siding, but are easy to maintain and, and, and don't need much work and can do the job of moving marshalling yards and moving trucks and what have you around in the marshalling yards and making everything easy go, then surely that's what you want. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas what we did in the in the British Armed Forces when it came to the railways, we would take the whole system there, you know, and you'd have ATEFs and and um, austerity locomotives and all the support staff and shunters and blah. And then you've got the whole colonial structure and then you've got the Egyptian railways coming in and all of that. The Germans didn't think like that. What they're actually looking for is a, a level of efficiency and effectiveness through a, through a large complex system and ensuring that it's running all the time. And it's maintaining that efficiency all of the time. So the troops arrive within a reasonable time, the supplies arrive at a reasonable time, and when there's an emergency and you need to get the fire, Hitler's fire brigade to the front line, you can get them in fast. And that works. And then you start working out, well, hang on, this system is so efficient, it's not helping, them, it's not only keeping them in the war, it's enabling them because the specialists of transportation within the, NZ, the SS understand this, it's enabling them to destroy Jewry across the whole of Europe. <laughs> ah. That's when you do get industrial murder on an industrial scale. And, and, and that, to me, is the is the missing part in the whole Holocaust story, because, yeah, we talk about the Auschwitz and we talk about Sobibor and all of these places and the cruelties of the Holocaust by bullets and the shootings. But the whole logistic system behind the Holocaust is, I mean, the planning, the, 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 the process, is being conducted while the main railway system is under pressure of war. <laughs> Plus, 
and, and I haven't had it this yet, the Royal Air Force is bombing all these cities and munitions areas. So you're having to move all the industries into places where you're building new factories and adding new lines. It's interesting, isn't it? The, the uh, trying to phrase it. We, hmm. It certainly gets you thinking, doesn't it? Uh, of well, you start thinking. When has this happened before? Well, it happened. It happened in Namibia, certainly with the use of. Um, um, the railways in Namibia for remove the destruction of the Herero by the German army. And they used the railways extensively in the First World War to stay in the war uh, during the Great War. Then you look at the Americans against the, you know, the American Indians, Native Americans. And you can see the railways were used then to destroy the buffalo and reduce the lands to the Indians. But there was never the impression, I don't have the impression that the railways were used to destroy Native Americans. They filled the space, they helped the pacification process, but they weren't part of the destruction process. Here, the Germans have taken the whole military system, the whole garrison state, and used it to destroy the Jews of Europe. Plus, plus, They've carried three million Russian prisoners of war and foreign workers to the tune of another four million and carried them into Germany as slave labor. <laughs> so you've got, you've got nine million slave laborers brought into Germany on one set of trains. You've got the Jews being taken out of Europe on another set of trains. You've got the armies moving across all over the place on the trains. And plus, you've got all the supplies coming from all the trains coming out to all the other places. And in that mix, there are horses. I just want to add that. Because people, you know, like to talk about the horses in the German army. Yeah, so that, that often crops up, doesn't it? I, I think... So have I, have I made it all gloomy now? Is it all, you know, <laughs> gloomy Friday for the weekend? Gloomy Friday, yeah, that's it. No, no it's not gloomy. It, it, it's the elephant in the room that needs to be discussed. And, and actually, you sort of... It, I, I, there, are, there are quite a few things there that people don't tend to, to consider when we look at the logistics of warfare and you know, straight away, you know, we're covering the movement of supplies, we're covering the movement of labour, we're covering uh, the movement of the shower. Um, there, there are various things going on there that are overlooked for, for whatever reason, either domestically within you know, the confines of Germany or externally, either by enthusiasts, military history, enthusiasts, history enthusiasts, or, or academics. And, and the point that you make about the the horse sort of it, it, it's very interesting and i think that it's one of those points that needs further further discussion because it seems to be almost doesn't it a perennial reference the german army relied heavily on horses um clearly they didn't because the trains were constantly moving with the troop movements and, and that's been you know as you mentioned and rightly so with Kosk. um they were, I mean, if we roughly add the numbers 
The German army mobilized about, I don't know, 14 million people. Plus, you've got 9 million people who are laborers, slave laborers. Yeah. Plus, you've then got 6 million Jews. All of that, all of that personnel was moved, if not once, but many times within a four year period. Yeah. That is not the normal stuff. That's that's all of it. So there we are. That was my talk. Thank you for coming. <laughs> that's all right, Bingo. <laughs> no, no. I just think that we have I know it's an unpleasant subject, but you can't talk about the German armed forces without putting them into the context of the logistics of the system. And if you're going to talk about logistics, you can't miss the Holocaust. Everybody wants to, but you can't. And, and rightly so, you, you can't. And you, you, there is this willingness, and, and not willingness, but there, there's this just sort of, it's there, let's not talk about it. Um, elements to the discussion of the use of railways uh, within the Holocaust setting um, and, and everything else. And also, this is quite an interesting discussion because what it does also is dispelled the myth that the, the, the military transportation system was somehow sacrificed um, to ensure a, a quicker transportation of those going to um, the various concentration camps. I mean, that, that's a rumour and a myth that's, that's sprung up over time and this discussion has clearly completely blown that away because, you know, it, it didn't. Um, but what, what, took, what took place instead was as equally dark uh, and menacing, if not more so. Well, I mean, it, it might shock you to think that what I've talked about with the Holocaust today is just so it's a micro dot of the story. Yeah. So we have to have another one. Oh, we do. We do. We have to carry on. Have to carry on discussing these things. Because we have that to is... narrow gauge steam engines and the German armed forces. That's always a good one. Narrow gauge locomotive. And then when we've done that, we can look at the. Uh, we we can we can develop the theme. Yeah, I reckon. Um, let's call it a day there. Thank you so much for your time, sharing your your, your insights and your knowledge. And this has been exceptionally interesting. And I really do hope um, that the people are able to take something away from this um, and, and and consider what previous you know adjusting previously held views about the transportation system the rail transportation system um, that took place on the Reichsbahn during during the war um, and perhaps you know uh, and as well a little bit before it um, so OCJ4 um, G4 in brackets J thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your your knowledge with us it, it greatly appreciated um, wherever you are in the world um, Thanks ever so much for joining us uh, on what's been a very interesting uh, podcast, one that we both Phil and I have over the past discussed and we felt now was the time um, to record. We, we've done a couple in the past um, and I think this is probably the, the, the most, this is this is the one that, we, that I feel would be the, the best way of, of telling that particular um, element of history, that piece of history that needs to be told and needs to, needs to be discussed. 
needs to well, be considered. It's, entry, it's a bit of an entry level, so we've not really touched the hardcore, but. No, but I I I think in terms it's a very very good entry, and it's something as you rightly say we just it's overlooked. It, it is it's, it's almost the elephant in the room, isn't it? Um, and, and and as you know, if you're interested in history, um, regardless of genre, you need to sometimes look at the unpleasant side of things and appreciate their 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 place in the overall scheme. Philip, thank you so much for your time today, my friend. It was great, Biggles. I love my <laughs> I love my sessions with the Flyboys. I mean, yeah, fly by nights. <laughs> That's what I meant. I was being polite. <laughs> hey! And on that note, um, I, I shall let you go get back to the the the, the joys at hand, and um, we will speak soon, my friend. Okay, and listeners, thank you ever so much for tuning in. Um, and wherever you are in the world, do take care and. Uh, Philip will be back. Dr. Philip Blood will be back discussing more things locomotive and training. All right. Cool. Have a wherever you are in the world. Take care and speak to you soon. TTFN. <laughs>